The Buddha used one word for mind called mano, and he used another word for mind called chitta. Mano is the mind that is associated with verbal thought. It's associated with volitional actions. It's associated with ditti or the interpretations that we add onto life, all the explanations, the rationalizations, the justifications for our actions. Every time we turn experience into thought, we are in mano. And there's a very famous, famous line the Dhammapada, which is kind of the condensed teachings of the Buddha. And the opening line is Mano Pabha Gama, Dhamma Mano Seta Mano Maya. So that means it's literally translated very often into something like we are what we think. But really, you know, you can't translate the language of the Buddhist time, which was Every word meant so many different things. It's as if every word in his language is like our words, love and freedom, which carries so many associations and meanings. Manopabhagama, dhamma manaseta manamaya means essentially we live in a virtual reality constructed by thought that is very different from the real world outside of us. This observation the Buddha is making is pretty much about the mind that creates thought. Then there's this second word, citta, and that doesn't mean verbal thought. It actually implies the emotional mind, the mind that is sometimes called the heart mind or the body mind. This mind, rather than creating thought and interpretations, create states of attention and feeling. The mind, he says, is either contracted or spacious, distracted or present, filled with emotional aversion or craving for something. Sometimes it's delusional, and sometimes it's very peaceful and tranquil. And the words that are most associated with citta are citta papa saram, and that is essentially means that the heart mind is ever expansive, ever aware in all directions. So we have two different minds that the Buddha is pointing to. One mind that creates a virtual reality of thought and images that pulls us away from the real, and another mind that is non-thought, that is aware and spacious, and emotional and embodied. So uh, somebody could press the uh, thank you. So as you can see, we have two separate minds that the Buddha is pointing to. Now, why would he do that? Let's put that on hold for a moment. And I'm going to now, as I love to do, jump into a little bit of the science. And hopefully I will convince you of why these two minds are important. So in 1962, two neuroscientists named Sperry and Gazaniga were introduced to what's called split-brain patients. Split-brain patients are people who had epilepsy that was untreatable, and the only way at the time that they could address this uh, profound stages of uh, the most severe forms of epilepsy was by severing 
what's called the corpus callosum, which is that thin strand of tissue that connects your left hemisphere to your right hemisphere. So in these patients to cure epilepsy, the doctors would literally separate the two hemispheres of the brain so that they were no longer speaking to each other through this thin thread of fibers. And what they found was very quickly that the left hemisphere likes to speak. The right hemisphere is, was far more embodied and emotional. And for a while, just those initial findings were spread far and wide in the press, and it turned into a kind of a joke psychology where people thought of themselves as either being left-brained or right-brained. Oh, I'm very logical, so I'm left-brained. No, I'm very artistic, so I'm right-brained. And of course, that's all nonsense, and that's not the way it works. In almost all operations in life, you're using both your hemispheres. You can't have uh, any kind of rational behavior. You can't in any way be without both hemispheres being involved, and both play very important roles. Over the last 30 years, there's been enormous amount of research that has pretty much uh, created a very concrete picture, though, of what the left and right hemispheres do. And while the left and right hemispheres are very similar, they have functions and roles that they play. And if you want to read about it, uh, you could look up, for instance, Gazzaniga's, who still, since the 60s, he's been working on this problem. Uh, he wrote a book called The Integrated Mind, and his most recent, Tales from Both Sides of the Brain. There's a book called The Divided Brain by Ian McGilchrist, who's a master at left-right brain. Robert Ornstein's The Right Mind. I could go on. I'm a, I'm a brain geek. So what we find, though, is that the left and right hemispheres dovetail the same way the Buddha described. The left hemisphere focuses attention on objects, and it separates those objects from the rest of their context and keeps those objects in mind and eventually turns them into symbols and words that it holds in mind. Now, why does it do that? Let me give you an example. Starting with mammals, if you were a predator, suppose you were an eagle and you're flying up there and you spot on the ground a squirrel, a prey. Now, if you were going to hunt that prey, you would keep in mind that there's a squirrel down there, and at times the squirrel wouldn't be visible to you because the squirrel would run under a tree or would go behind some rocks, so you wouldn't see the squirrel anymore. Now, it wouldn't make much sense for a predator to lose all consideration of its prey simply because it couldn't see it anymore. It would have to be able to keep in mind that it was hunting for something even though that thing wasn't visible. Are you following me? So the left hemisphere allows us to focus on a single object and try to attain it or acquire it, even when it's not visible. We have turned our left hemisphere not just to be able to keep things in mind that are not present. For instance, as you walked to Dharma Punks tonight, you probably had something or other on your mind that wasn't present in front of you. 
what was present in front of you were streets with cars, and you probably crossed those streets with cars, but you at often times were thinking about something that wasn't there. You might be thinking about a conversation that you had at work with somebody. You might be thinking about planning for the next day, or planning for a trip, or paying a bill, or dealing with unresolved issues in your life. So the left hemisphere, from birds and mammals onto uh, primates, developed a hemisphere that could be aware and keep in mind things that are not in any way present. And how does it do it? It created for us language and symbols. So we have, in our left hemisphere, the capability to create a virtual reality, a symbolic reality, where we can plan, we can keep track of projects, we can set goals, and all of those things are not in front of us. They're not present-time stimuli. If you have a plan for getting in shape this year, none of that, the exercise equipment right now isn't here, but you could think about it. The left hemisphere gives us a sense of power and optimism. It allows us to make predictions. It keeps track of how we're doing in our lives by turning everything into a story. So, and the one thing even more that the left hemisphere does is it releases dopamine to reward us for accumulating and acquiring things. The left hemisphere believes that it doesn't need to connect with other people. It believes it needs to acquire something in the future to make it feel, to make it feel safe, secure. So the left hemisphere is all about future planning, keeping in mind things that aren't present, following our progress, setting more and more goals, always looking for the next thing, living in this virtual reality that is very, very profoundly different from what is around us right now. The left hemisphere, when it thinks about who we are, it thinks of the self as completely isolated and different from everybody else. The things that separate me and make me identifiable, that's what my left hemisphere cares about. The left hemisphere only cares about things it can manipulate, manipulate. It manipulates the left, the right hand. It manipulates language and words. And it, when it interacts with people, it doesn't care about their emotional states. It just listens to the words they say. And it tries to turn everything into a story. The left hemisphere is what the Buddha was pointing to when he used the word mano. A virtual reality machine that keeps and creates an entirely separate universe that is constructed by the mind. Now, of course, we have a right hemisphere, and the right hemisphere does very, very different things. Let's go back to that predator bird. If you were that predator bird while you're flying around, keeping in mind that squirrel that you're hunting, you wouldn't want to fly into a tree. <laughs> You wouldn't also want to become a prey yourself of another bird. While you were walking here, and if you were lost in thought, you still had your right hemisphere keeping track of what was going on around you. It was doing that in the background of awareness. Your thoughts, your left hemisphere, is, manipulates your conscious awareness. Your right hemisphere 
keeps in mind everything that's going on around you. It sees and it looks out for dangers and it looks out for new information. Your left hemisphere just wants to think and keep abstract ideas in mind. Your right hemisphere wants to constantly scan the present time, looking out for threats and opportunities. It's a world that is completely interconnected. The right hemisphere has no desire to separate objects for their, from their context. It simply wants to know, am I safe? Am I connected? Am I okay right now where I am? This, the right hemispheric self, if you switched off using the water test you shot, you, or you used transcranial magnetic stimulation and switched off my left hemisphere and activated my right, and if my right hemisphere was better at speaking than it, it is, and you asked me, who am I? I wouldn't talk about the things that made me different or unique. I talk about all the connections I have in my life, who I feel safe with, who I feel most accepted by, who I feel most emotionally connected to. Your right hemisphere works with serotonin and norepinephrine. None of those neurotransmitters reward me for achieving or accumulating or purchasing anything. If I'm lonely and I decide to eat, I'm trying to figure out an emotional problem with my left hemisphere by consuming food which activates dopamine. That's not going to solve the issue. There's other really interesting differences between the two brains that we have. And yes, we have two very different brains, each of us. The left hemisphere only cares about single specific meanings. A classic example of a left hemispheric sign is a stoplight, where green means go and red means stop. That's as denotative and specific as you can get. The right hemisphere doesn't like anything to be tied down in a single meaning. It's associative, it's metaphoric. A classic right hemispheric sign is a flag. What the fuck does a flag mean? If I asked each of you, you'd each say a different answer. If I asked you what the fuck does a Christian cross mean, I would be the last to know because I'm a Buddhist Jew, but... People say it means, I don't know, faith, trustworthiness. I gather 2,000 years ago somebody died on, that, on a cross. I don't know why Christians want to be reminded of that, but they do. Uh, nobody wants to remind themselves of why the Buddha died. He died of food poisoning. It would be as if I like, carried a piece of rotten food around my neck. It's <laughs> strange, but... Anyway, open-ended metaphors are what the right hemisphere does. Uh, I don't know where I got off on that. Interestingly, it's your right hemisphere that makes all of your big decisions and changes all of your behaviors. We like to believe that we are logical, rational beings. And we like to believe that there's a thing called willpower. And guess what? There isn't. Every decision we make in life is due to the right hemisphere, orbital frontal. When you shut down somebody's emotional circuits, the right orbital frontal, which Damasio's experiments found people that had lesions in their right orbital frontal, which is the emotional center of the right hemisphere, none of them could make decisions. 
None of them could change behaviors. They'd sit rationalizing, coming up with ideas, back and forth, justifications, and none of them changed a behavior or came up with a decision in their life. Everything was just dictated by routine. They couldn't do anything new. So really, when we tell people, why can't you give up smoking? What, you don't have willpower? We're actually saying nonsense. Because the only reason people make new behavioral changes or make decisions is because they're emotionally invested. Rationalization, justifications, all thought happens at the very last part of the causative chain. When Benjamin Labette studied the brain, he showed that after a stimuli happens, in about a tenth of a second, we have an emotional physiological response. And shortly after that, we have an inclination, an impulse to behave in a certain way. And guess what? Four tenths of a second later, thought shows up. But thought does this fascinating thing. It backdates everything that happened before it to be experienced at the same time. That's what consciousness does. To make it seem that thought and impulses all happen at the same time. Actually, they don't. All of the decisions, the choices you make, all of your behavior is caused far before your thought appeared. The only thing your thought does is sometimes it can override really bad ideas. That's it. That's the limit of human free will. But in terms of willpower, pushing ourselves to do things by sheer force doesn't work. The only way we can actually change behaviors is by buying into it emotionally. The great Kahneman, Daniel Kahneman, who won the Nobel Prize for Science, showed that virtually all of the behavioral changes, when you investigate them, we come up with the justifications, but even if you investigate the justifications, they don't make sense. They don't capture why we do the things we do. He also came up with what's called the peak end rule, which is that not only do emotions determine how we act and the decisions we make, they also determine what we remember. Interestingly enough, if you go on a vacation your left hemisphere won't be able to help you choose what you remember. You can say, oh, I really want to remember this, and you probably won't. What you will remember are the two most dominant emotional experiences. Then your right hemisphere kicks in, and it switches on the hippocampus on both sides, and it says this experience is really important, and I'm going to recall them. And then at night, when you're dreaming, and your left hemisphere is shut off, so you're no longer engaging in your virtual reality world, your right hemisphere is creating your dreams and consolidating your memories. So guess what? Almost everything important in life is not done in thought. It's actually done emotionally. And if we want to make any changes, and if we want to make wise decisions, we have to learn how to involve not the mano, the thinking, logical, rational mind, but we have to actually consult with the emotional 
mind. Now, I'll give you another fun difference before I show you how to use your emotional mind to make important changes in life. So, not only does, I talked about how the left hemisphere likes signs that have specific meaning. The left hemisphere also wants to interpret life to a single set interpretation. So if you saw the movie Apocalypse Now, I hope some people have seen that. I'm not that old that I'm using a reference that none of you have ever heard of. All right, anyway, it's a good film. It jumped to mind when I was thinking about what example to use. So Apocalypse Now, it's a movie version of Heart of Darkness, and it's about uh, Captain Willard has to go into the jungle of Vietnam and, and find Colonel Kurtz, who's lost his mind and gone native, and he has to kill the colonel because the colonel is turning the Viet Cong against, or he's unifying the Viet Cong and some of the people to fight with the Viet Cong. So if you ask your left hemisphere if you see this movie, what did it mean? Your left hemisphere will say, oh, it's an anti-war flick. It's a movie about the folly of the Vietnam War. Or it's a movie about one guy that has to kill another guy. That's it. You'll just come up with one interpretation. If you ask your right hemisphere, your right hemisphere will come up with multiple, multiple unsettled symbolic things. It will resonate to your right hemisphere like, this could be a metaphor for colonialization, how every colonialist has to worry about the influence that the colonized will take on the colonialists. Or it could be a metaphor of the unconscious mind, that in each of us there's this dangerous id that's aggressive, that wants to consume us, and that would be Kurtz in the movie. So your right hemisphere is richly symbolic. We see this in life all the time. When important events happen, we rush and we expect, left hemispherically, for people to have a single emotional response. For instance, if somebody gets engaged, we might say to them, oh, you must be so happy, <laughs> right? But if we weren't so left hemispheric, if we acknowledged the emotional truth of our minds, we'd go to them and we'd say, what are the many emotions that you're feeling right now, having gotten engaged? And then the person, instead of feeling obligated to say, oh, I'm excited, they would say, I'm terrified. Are you kidding? I have to spend the rest of my life with this person. The last time I was in a long-term relationship, it ended catastrophically. But there's some good things. Now I get to see my parents, and I'll have somebody there, a wingman, so that they won't be able to take their shit out on me alone. I don't, I don't know. So in other words, every important event has many different emotional ramifications. But because we are so left-dominant, we tend to expect one. When somebody dies and we go to the funeral, we only expect people to feel grief. Now, that's obviously one thing that they'll feel, but they might also, if the person who's died was uh, in a vegetative state for years, they might also feel relief. That wouldn't be bad. They might also feel a sense of liberation for the person who was suffering. But in our culture, we don't like that. We only want the single one emotion 
Because again, we over-believe that thought and interpretations should be the key to life, not emotions. The left hemisphere is time-stamped. It puts everything in a chronological order. The right hemisphere has no time to it. So a trauma that happened to you when you were five can be just as fresh and just as emotionally powerful today as if it happened yesterday. Your right hemisphere doesn't let anything go, nothing fades, until it is emotionally processed. And that brings me to how do we live from an increasingly right hemispheric balanced perspective. So given that the two minds attend to the world in two different ways and create two different worlds, we, our job is to integrate the right hemisphere, the felt emotional mind, and use it to make smart behavioral choices and smart decisions for ourselves. Let me give you an example. If somebody experiences anger in a relationship, the left hemisphere will simply decide to turn that anger, that feeling of anger in the right hemisphere and in the body, will try to turn it into resentments. They'll just think a lot of shit about the other person, and they might go around and turn that story into something that they'll tell other people. Can you believe my boss? My boss is such a fucking ass. They asked me to work, blah, 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 blah. That's the left hemispheric solution, to turn everything into a story and to seek something, to try to get something from other people, to try to get sympathy or whatever. The right hemisphere doesn't want any of that. When we feel angry, the right hemisphere simply wants the anger to be felt, to be acknowledged, and then it wants us to set boundaries so that whatever caused the anger won't happen again. Now, if we try to live left hemispherically by just getting, turning our anger into stories of resentment that we carry around, our anger is never processed, and it will stay there ongoing for years because we have not processed the feeling. But if you sit with the anger, you feel it in your body, and then you ask your anger, what do I need to do to feel safe? And your anger will eventually point you in the direction of saying of establishing boundaries, of saying, no, I'm not going to let this happen again. I'm going to make it clear this can't happen. Suppose you experience anxiety. Your left hemisphere solution, when it feels anxiety, is to worry and catastrophize, to think about all the different shit that can go wrong in your life, because it thinks that the best way to solve anxiety, the feeling of vulnerability, is to figure out everything that can go wrong. Well, guess what? You, that doesn't work very well, does it? What does work when we feel anxiety is to bring to mind all the times we've been caught off guard and we did fine. To bring to mind all the people that are connected and will be there for us if something bad happens. To connect closely with people so that we feel safe. If you do that, your anxiety will be processed. If we feel loneliness, we come home at night, the left hemisphere will push you to turn on your television or to eat a bag of Oreos or to purchase something on Amazon because that's what the left hemisphere wants you to do. It doesn't want you to connect. 
It doesn't want you to be in any way vulnerable with other people. It just wants you to acquire something. Like the eagle wanted to acquire that squirrel. That's where dopamine gets released. And all of the shopping for food and clothes and, and turning on TV will alleviate the loneliness for all of about a half an hour. And then it'll be right back. I'm sure you've experienced that in life when you felt kind of, you had a stressful week, and so you felt impelled to go to a store and buy something. We've all done it. And then we get home, and by the time we get home, we're like, why did I buy this? You know, and then it just gets thrown in the closet. So the solution to all of the emotional states that activate, and you'll know that there's an emotion present because there will be obsessive thought. That's the job of your left hemisphere. When you're feeling something, it immediately kicks in and tries to figure out a way to get rid of it. So it will start kicking into action. If you're thinking obsessively, it means there is an unresolved emotional activation. And the answer will not be in thought. The answer will be felt. It will be in connecting with the body, creating a safe space, holding the emotions, and learning to resolve the emotions in a way that really take care of them. Finally, another note before we meditate is that if you go through a breakup and you're really distraught, your left hemisphere will focus your attention on that person and how to win them back or what was wrong with them. It'll keep you fixated on that one event that's most chronologically recent. Your right hemisphere, though, is aware that that rejection is actually tied to a long line of interpersonal abandonments and rejections that stem all the way back to childhood. And that's why getting break, broken up with sucks. It's not really because of that recent relationship. It's because every abandonment, rejection, criticism, every judgment somebody we feel put through activates an entire emotional history. And that emotional history is just as present today as it was when it was first implanted in childhood. So if we want to be less triggered in our life, we have to stop relying on thought and rationalization and trying to figure it out, and we have to start feeling the feelings and learning how to ask our emotions what they need. Then we can process, and then we can move on. Okay? So that's what we're going to do. We're going to, in our meditation, we are actually going to put this into practice. So come to a seated position that's comfortable, closing the eyes or looking at the ground in front of you. And the first key is to feeling into the body, just see if you can find the sensations associated with your head, the sensations associated with your shoulders and the sensations associated with your hips, and see if you could bring them into some kind of alignment that feels good. Don't try to shape your body visually by 
visualizing how you look, that's again left hemispheric. We want to feel alignment, which means feeling in to the sensations of the head, the shoulders, and the hips. So if you can get a nice alignment, and finally, if it feels appropriate, if you have a tendency to slouch in front of your chest, tilt your head ever so slightly back, like you're looking at a tall building, like all that means is lift your chin a little, and you'll find that that will help dissuade the neck from slouching, and that's really important to have a comfortable seat that's maintainable. So we'll take three breaths just to start the practice in unison. So take a nice, full, deep in-breath and lift your shoulders up while you're breathing in through your nose and hold them up there. Hold, hold, hold. And then as you breathe out through your mouth, wonderful, perfect. Like the shoulders suddenly weigh two tons, and if it feels right, gently pull them a little bit back. That opens up the chest, but only if that feels right for your body. Never do anything that feels wrong for your body. So the next in-breath through the nose, pulling in the belly, tight, 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 holding it in, and then breathing out through the mouth. Relaxing, softening the belly. Your belly is actually one of the seats of the vagal vagus nerve, which is how your brain activates felt emotions. So it's a good way to address anxiety and tension. So the third breath, as we breathe in through the nose, squinching the muscles of the face really tight, 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 ugly pinched face that nobody can see because their eyes are closed. And then breathing out. Wonderful. So for the first part of the meditation, we're going to do a concentration practice. And that is going to take advantage of your left circuits, your left brain circuits, which can keep something in mind. So we're using this practice to settle the left hemisphere and to take advantage of its ability to create a sense of security through holding something in mind. So there are many things you can hold in mind. It could simply be the sensations of your body breathing And that should be a felt experience, not anything that's cognitive, visual. We want it to be felt, embodied. So locating the sensations of expansion and contraction.
And the Buddha said in the sutta on breathing, just knowing when you're breathing in, knowing when you're breathing out. It's useful for those of us who'd like to develop a concentration practice, but the mind keeps jumping around to count inhalations and exhalations, and that's simply done. Just think one while you're breathing in, two while you're breathing out, three in, four out, and then when you get to five, start counting back down, four on the out, three on the in. It doesn't have to be to five. You can count up to any number you choose. And if you lose track of the number, just bring your awareness back. No judgment, no frustration. If you set an intention for your meditation, it should simply be to be as patient and compassionate with yourself as possible, to refrain from any tendency we have to judge ourselves, to beat ourselves up, to criticize ourselves, to be impatient. If nothing else, it's not important that you cultivate a completely peaceful mind, but it is important that you cultivate a mind that is free of criticism and judgment. Another object I like to keep in mind and it's very pleasant to do so, is just to listen to the sounds that are occurring, reaching awareness. Don't go out and look for sounds, just allow them to arrive. Don't add any story or visuals about the sound. So if you hear a car honking, don't visualize what the car looks like. If you start to do that, just ask yourself to stay with the sounds themselves. And to try to stay as present as you can. Again, if you find yourself, your left hemisphere, asserting the need to think, just let go of the thoughts and just focus the left on keeping something in mind. And in this case, it could be sounds. A third concentration object could be an image of a candle, a very simple circle colored in, a place you know very well that you could visualize in great detail. Or finally you could recite a metaphrase holding your image in mind or the image of somebody you care about. Phrases repeating like, may I be peaceful? May I feel secure? May I live with ease? May all beings know peace? May all beings feel secure? May all beings live with ease.
So we're going to practice in silence for a while. And again, every time your mind slips away, just think of when you become aware that you've slipped away as a form of awakening. So it's something to be celebrated, not frustrated with. Every time you drop a virtual reality thought and you come present, you are in your own way repeating part of the Buddha's enlightenment.
So at this point, you can allow whatever you've been holding in mind to still be present, but recede into the background. Now I'd like you to bring your mind to an event that was interpersonal, involving you and one other person, that was disappointing, frustrating, irritating. In some way, it created a lot of thought. It could be self-righteous thought, how dare they. It could be resentment, I'll show them. It could be sadness, missing someone. And then that might give birth to self-pity. You'll know it's an appropriate choice if it's something that's activated a lot of thought. Because again, emotional experience tends to trigger the left hemispheric interpreter to go haywire with ideation. So visualize, if you will, not just the person involved with this event, but also a setting. It doesn't matter if you're making it up or if you can actually remember the exact location where it occurred. But it's important that you make the image as detailed as you can. And then finally, not only seeing the place where this conversation, this disappointment, this abandonment, rejection, whatever happened, but also picture where you are. Were you sitting or standing? Were you moving or standing still? How did your body feel when this event happened? The goal is to recreate an emotional event in such detail that you start to feel some of the same feelings. We're looking for tightness in the belly contraction or emptiness in the chest, a lump in the throat, a locked jaw, the slight feeling of a change in the way we breathe, the forehead furrowing. See if you can find some emotional, physiological experience and just be with it. Don't turn it into a story. Don't go back into the rationalizing, figuring out, planning, just be with the experience and the feeling. Holding it. 
if it's a tightness in the belly, just relax around it, but allow the belly to be tight. If it's a lump in the throat, relax the shoulders, the muscles in the face, but allow the throat to be, or the jaw to be clenched. It doesn't matter if the feeling is very weak or very strong, even if it's just a subtle tightness in the belly, a subtle squinching of the micro-muscles around the eyes. Just feeling, feeling your anger, feeling your sadness, feeling your grief, feeling disappointed, Creating a safe container, that's what feelings want to be felt and acknowledged. And when they feel accepted, you can just ask. Let the right hemisphere, its ability to freely associate, just ask it. What do you need? Now it won't generally talk to you in words, but sometimes an image, somebody you want to connect with, or a place that makes you feel safe. If nothing appears, you can just ask it a very simple question. When I feel anxious and I connect with it, I ask it, do I need to take on less obligations? And sometimes I'll feel my body relax. Connecting with the emotional mind means getting out of our own way. Not trying to figure out life not trying to be logical, not trying to do what other people tell us to do, not worrying about what makes sense, just allowing yourself to be in the emotional state and just ask that emotional state what it needs. Sometimes at first, if it's angry, it might want to scream or vent, but then if you stay with it long enough, the emotion becomes a little more regulated and it can show you other needs. So, this was just an introduction. 
to a process. It takes a lot of practice. It's taken me years and years to learn how to change behaviors and make choices and process emotions through connecting rather than falling into the cognitive traps that don't resolve any emotions. So whenever you're ready, we can slowly open the eyes and look at the ground in front of you and see if while you take in the light and the color that you can also maintain awareness of your body. An integrated mind means integrating not just awareness of the sights and sounds around us and our thoughts, but it also means being aware of how your body feels, what emotions are present. So see if before you look around the room you can balance your awareness knowing how you feel, knowing what you see, knowing what you hear, knowing what you think. 